Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. Resurrection Day is always my favorite day of the whole year. I don't think that's always been the case. I used to, as a kid, I liked Christmas the most. And, and for those of you that love Christmas the most, that's okay too. But something has transpired. I think as I've gotten older, I've understood something about the resurrection. There was a pretty famous theologian at Princeton who wrote a commentary. He had 100 and, oh, it was about 150 pages about the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, in that, it's probably one of the best commentaries on the atonement and the uh, cross. But he, uh, when he covered the resurrection, he had four pages. Now, can I just tell you, there's a, there were a lot of people that were crucified uh, during the days of the Roman Empire and actually got started in the Persian Empire. All these terrible Babylonian Persian empires practiced these kind of brutal forced uh, executions. Uh, but the... the um, the execution of Jesus Christ was not just the execution of Jesus Christ, because a lot of people were um, executed in those days. The difference between Jesus' execution and the rest of them was He is the only one that rose from the dead. And that is why we are gathered here today. We're not gathered here because just because someone died for us out of love and affection, but someone had an incorruptible life that death was incapable of stopping. That's that's what the scripture tells us. He had an incorruptible life. And in fact, the psalmist says that he would not even see decay. Even though his body was very dead, and that's part of the creed, He was crucified, dead, and buried. So he was was not mostly dead. He was completely dead. His body suffered terminus. It stopped functioning. And yet the scripture says he saw no decay. And for three days, there was an epic battle going on. So the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most explosive event, and it changed everything. But it's not so much an explosion as a quiet, implacable invasion of God's kingdom from heaven into earth. It was the beginning of the establishment of a new kind of government whose increase shall never end. The triumph of this new world order called the kingdom of God is inevitable. But it will not be triumphalistic with guns and force and power and politics. It will come through weakness and what the apostle Paul called the foolishness of God. It will come through a demonstrated love and sacrifice of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, And then the same kind of sacrifice from that of his loyal subjects. And every one of these loyal subjects must have an individual encounter 
with the resurrected Lord Jesus, which is, the only, which is only the beginning of a change to everything about and within them. Christians of every kind believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe it was a historical event, but it was not like just any historical event. It's not like George Washington crossing the frozen Delaware River on Christmas Day in 1776 to defeat the Brit British in the Battle of Trenton. Now, whether you believe that the Battle of Trenton happened or not won't affect your eternal destiny. It certainly might affect whether you're a citizen of the United States or the United Kingdom. But the reason we as Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead affects every person on this planet. Their eternal citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is at stake. Now, I know that sounds very exclusive, and it is, but it's not out of some privileged exclusivity or bias or discrimination that's unjustified. It is exclusivity is simply because no one else has ever risen from the dead. That's where the exclusivity comes from. It's not some idea of superiority on our part. It's the, the absolute superiority of the God whose life could not ultimately be taken from him. The unjustified murder of Jesus Christ was the reason for our justification for what we should have been murdered for. And that exchange happens only when we personally encounter the resurrected Christ himself. And so for us this morning, I want to look at four individual instances recorded in the book of John chapter 20 and 21 where Jesus encounters individuals. And each one of those encounters with Jesus gives us an insight in how he is going to encounter the resurrected Christ wants to encounter those of us in this room and the rest of the world. So let's look at the very first one. And it's, let's start in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now skip down to verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. I want you to notice something. There were two angels. Um, Moses had an ark. And in the ark, the middle, middle of the ark was called the mercy seat. And at each end of the ark were two angels who covered the mercy seat. Jesus Christ was our mercy seat. That is... You see, what, what God was predicting in the ark of the... Anybody that's watched Indiana Jones and, you know, the, the search for the ark, 
knows you can't look at God and, and survive, right? I mean, we've all watched those movies. <laughs> well, that ark, Steven Spielberg, who's Jewish, got it right. It had two cherubim covering the mercy seat. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me or do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord, and she told them what he'd said, these things to her. Now, you know what's really fascinating to me? Mary had a narrative, and in that narrative, it made it very impossible for her to see and recognize the Lord Jesus. But the Scripture says in Acts that Jerusalem failed to recognize Jesus as well. In fact... Most of us, that this is a perfect metaphor for the whole human race. We all tend to not recognize Jesus when he's standing right in front of us because of the stories we have circulating in our head. And I believe that one of the most salient points of this is those of us that know the background of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was uh, the woman in whom seven demons were cast out. That's part of her biography. She, we, we know from history that she was, she was an abused woman. And uh, she didn't live a life of purity and holiness when Jesus encountered her and healed her and delivered her. And I, I imagine that much of her life was one filled with victimhood. And in fact, there's almost this perspective in the way she even addresses about Jesus, they've taken him away, and I don't know where they've put him. Everything happens to Mary, and her whole world is about stuff happening out of her control. And you know, Mary epitomizes a lot of us, where we think life just happens to us, and we are the victims of that life, and things happen to us out of our control, and every one of us have experienced that in our lives. We, like Mary, because of that narrative that says we are a perpetual victim, basically makes it really hard to recognize him. Because we're so absorbed in the, the facts of our own life that we have very little capacity to observe the reality that's greater than we are, right in our presence. She can't see either the supernatural angels nor the resurrected Lord Jesus. But then he does something that is what Jesus does with all of us. He says our name. 
He says her name. He knows you and he knows me. He is not just some impersonal deity in heaven who doesn't know us. And he didn't, he, first thing he asked her, in fact, he asked her two questions, not one. You see, the nature of God is not just to sit and lecture, but he wants to know us. He wants to know, he wants us to know ourselves because he already knows us better than we know ourselves. And he said, why are you crying? And um, as, as we were worshiping this morning, I don't know about you, but some of you, if you're honest, you couldn't help but cry a little bit. You may not have been able to even explain why. But Mary was someone, in the word maudlin, which is a word for highly emotional people, comes from Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. She was very in touch with her emotions. And that doesn't mean it was a bad thing. It just means that she sometimes got control of those. But one of the things that Jesus did to, to reverse her sense of victimhood is he said, he gave her, now listen to this. First of all, she was a woman. The Greek scholars of the day that hated Christianity justified their hatred and dismissal of Christianity for one simple reason, that they claimed that this God revealed himself to women of all things. Therefore, it couldn't be legitimate. Which is another reason that when you start looking at the empirical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it begins to make so much sense because God never does anything the way we think anyone should do it. And he's, his first person was someone that most of the culture would have absolutely dismissed as a reliable witness. And yet, that's his first choice. And not only was it his first choice, his first choice was given some of the most amazing doctrinal truth in the history of the world. And he said, go and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And you go, well, how's that one of the most important truths? Well, you have to understand some background, and we're not going to get into all that, but here's the, here's the gist of it. Mary, he said, Mary, don't touch me. And scholars differ on whether Mary actually did touch him or she was about to touch him. I think she was about to because he knew that Mary was a hugger. I, I think Jesus knew Mary was a hugger, and he was saying, Mary, don't, don't, don't touch me yet. i got to go ascend to my father because I am the high priest that has been clothed in the precious blood, not of bulls and goats, but my own, and I'm going to take this blood and I'm going to present it to the Father so that the entire human race can be redeemed for eternity. And I need to get that job done so that when I come back, I will pour out my Holy Spirit and you will never experience the intimacy you could have with, with me like this like you will have in the future when my Holy Spirit indwells in you. That is the intimacy he was looking forward to, to having with Mary. And so he had to ascend. And when he descended, because the, the very next story, and we're not going to look into it, 
uh, excuse me, the, the third story, we're going to kind of skip over it, is his appearance before the, the, the not an individual, but the, all the disciples except for Thomas. And so, what Jesus, Mary's expecting intimacy to look like comfort, but Jesus sends her on an assignment. Sometimes the most comforting thing for those of us who've been victimized by life is that we need to quit worrying about our victimhood and start doing something for someone else. Sometimes the assignment that God gives us is the most important comfort we'll ever have. So, let's go to John encounters the resurrected Jesus Christ. So in verse 2, let's go back, back up. So she... Mary Magdalene came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. I like this. I, I, I think, sometimes I think John said that because he and Peter had a running joke. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Again, you see her kind of explanation of stuff is happening and I don't know what's going on. So Peter and the other stuff disciples started for the tomb. This is an amazing detail. If John's willing to get into trivia, so am I. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter and reached the tomb first. I just think that's funny. Here it is, this really, this is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and John and Peter are competing. And it's not that they compete. Yeah, they competed. They ran. But he has to tell it in the gospel. I just think God has a great sense of humor. He bent over and looked in at the strips. And he being, John's talking about himself here. At the strips of linen lying, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind, huffing and puffing, I'm sure, and went through straight into the tomb. You know, Peter just never was hesitant. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, and that's John, who never refers to himself in the book of John at all. He only says, I'm the one that Jesus loved, and I'm the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They, and he, he puts this parenthetical statement, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So I want to just talk briefly about this experience of John encountering the resurrected Jesus. You say, well, he didn't, res- he didn't meet the resurrected Jesus. John actually didn't see Jesus in this event. But there's something that tells us that John believed, he saw, and he believed. Now, interestingly enough, the word, that, the word saw, S-A-W, is used in the English in both instances. When Peter saw the linen and when John saw the same evidence. But they're two completely different Greek words. 
The first word, when, when uh, Peter walked in, is a Greek word that we get for theorize, to analyze, to cogitate, if you're from East Tennessee. It, it's where you sit and you scratch your head, you cipher, you calculate, you ponder, you analyze, you, you really work your left brain. When the word that is used when John saw the linens, it's a completely different word. It means to perceive, to see with your mind's eye, to see with the eyes of your heart. Now, I'm just telling you, John did this very intentionally. John is frankly, one of the most evidently analytical thinkers in the New Testament, some scholars think, yet at the same time, he was completely in touch with another part of him, and that was the eyes of his heart, which is what Paul, too, talked about. Every one of us in this room have been trained and developed to learn how to think with our cognitive Capacities, our right, our left brain, as, as it's often called. But can I, can I just tell you this morning, these children don't understand the doctrine of baptism, but that doesn't mean they were not baptized and received the grace that comes through baptism. John even is trying to emphasize. Look, I didn't even understand what the Scripture said about the resurrection, which later on we started beginning to assemble exactly what the Scripture said about Jesus and that he would have to be raised from the dead and that he would be raised from the dead. Even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so shall the Son of Man be. He, he began to piece it together. But he, he's trying to say to us, there is something going on inside my heart that is perceiving reality when Nothing about all the facts are quite necessarily stacking up. Now, that's not to say that cognitive understanding is unimportant. It is incredibly important. It's just it's not sufficient. And there's where a lot of Christians are. They've, they've encountered the evidence, but they still haven't believed. They're, they're like what I say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. I'm no Buddhist. But that's not the kind of believer that is changed by the resurrected encounter with Jesus. But John is changed. He said, I believe. Then we have Jesus encountering Thomas, doubting Thomas. He's the most famous skeptic in all of history. Now Thomas, verse 24, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, lest I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, so this is a Sunday following, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I think he had to do that because he scared them. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, nearly all of us have heard this story, but I just want to pull, tease out a few ideas. A lot of them say, well, you know, he, Thomas was a, a doubter. He, was a, he, was, he lived only in his head. And I, I, could, I can go along with that, but I, I, I'm going to disagree with it. I think my opinion is just as legitimate. We know that Thomas, in chapter 11, when they said that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem die, he said, let's go die with him. Thomas was a loyal guy. He was an emotional guy. He was willing to die for Jesus. But I think what happened to Thomas is Thomas is like a lot of us who've been incredibly disappointed with life and have had our expectations dashed. And as a consequence, we begin to protect our heart by being cynical and unbelieving and saying, ah, unless I see the facts, I'm not going to believe. Well, you can see all the facts you want and you still won't believe. I'm going to give you a good example. This has actually happened. This happens, uh, um, these high wire guys that walk across the high wires and the circuses, and they walk across and they'll, they'll walk back and forth several times and the crowds cheer and they'll say, do you believe I can do this carrying someone on my shoulders? And you know, the, the crowd oohs and ahs and they carry someone over on their shoulders. And then they carry, then he gets a wheelbarrow and he throws some bricks and block in it and he carries the, the wheelbarrow over the tightrope. And then he asks this question, how many of you believe that I can load even more weight into this wheelbarrow. And the crowd shouts, yes, we believe, we can. And then he says, I'm looking for a volunteer, sir, how about you? Despite all the evidence, their emotions are like, I'm not sure I'm willing to entrust my entire life. And this, is, this it has less to do with logic and a whole lot more to do with emotion. Thomas's disappointment-laden unbelief encounters Jesus, and Jesus is not afraid to confront that. And he doesn't confront it in a harsh manner. He says, okay, here's, here's, my, here's my hands, here's my side. Put, put, your hand, put your hands in there. Now, you notice something that happened. There's something that happened in Jesus' willingness to meet Thomas in his unbelief. A lot of people say, well, God doesn't deal with people who have unbelief. Well, I don't know. I just read this story. Sounds like he does. He's not intimidated by your unbelief and your skepticism and your hurt and your pain and your unwillingness to really embrace him. He's just not intimidated by that. And you know, Thomas actually never puts his hands in Jesus' holes in his hand. You know what Thomas does? His broken heart is healed instantly. And he utters 
the most amazing doctrinal truth. My Lord and my God. He recognizes that this man is also the God of the universe, standing right in front of him. And a lot of scholars think this is the summation of the book of John. He's, this, and John tells us he's written this so that we, you and me, and every person that we encounter will believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. All right. Let's go to the last encounter, the fourth one. And this one, this one hurts me more than any, because I think in some ways it reflects a lot of us, especially American evangelicals who come from a very strong consecration culture. So Jesus has appeared to the disciples all at once, but on the, there's, John says this is the third event, and the guys are out fishing. And it says that Peter said, I'm going fishing, and six other disciples join him. Two of them remain unknown, unnamed. It's kind of like, if you're going to tell the story, John, please use my name, please. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know. But it, it, it's like, he could have just said their names, but it says he didn't, he didn't name them. I think it was probably Andrew and Philip, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, they're out fishing. They're fishing all night. They catch nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus cries out to them and says, hey, and you know, they see this guy, and he says, uh, why don't you throw your net on the other side? And they... Something inside the recesses of their memory causes them to be willing to do that. And the reason is in Luke, at the very beginning of Jesus' summons to Peter, James, and John, he did that exact thing. In fact, Peter kind of got into an argument. He said, look, Master, we've been fishing all night, and this thing hasn't worked. And last time I checked, you were a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? I, he didn't say that. That's my paraphrase. And he... He, he said, but nevertheless, it's your word, I'll do it. Well, it doesn't say this time, they, they just did it. And then John said, it's the Lord. Now, let me tell you what Peter did the first time this event happened. Oh, by the way, they had such a harvest of fish when he threw it on the other side, just like back in Luke in the very beginning. It's like the Lord's repeating a miracle again for him. But this time, the haul is so great. There's 153 fish. That, that's the detail John notices. He can't remember the names of two of the other disciples, but he gets the 153 fish. Anyway, Peter, this time, his response is completely different than the first time. The first time he... He bows before Jesus and said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a wicked man. This time he jumps in the water, swims 100 yards to meet Jesus, and they, he said, bring some fish, and I've got some fish on the fire, and he has a fire, and they start eating, and all of them, it says, and none of them dare, well, let's look at it. 
So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, just an aside here that's kind of interesting. Do you notice that they're not completely sure it's Jesus, but they knew it was? Something with their left brain was saying this doesn't quite look like Jesus. And yet their right brain was telling them, oh yeah, it was Jesus. And I'm using the left brain, right brain, because the eyes of your heart is the only way to apprehend the resurrected Lord. He first speaks to our cognition, but if you are unwilling to submit your heart to the wooing of the inward eyesight, you cannot encounter the resurrected Lord. It is the only way to do it. And then, after they have breakfast, Jesus goes on a walk with Peter. He says, Peter, come along with me. He said, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These guys. I, I think that's what he was doing. He's walking along and he says, Simon, do you love me more than these guys over there? And, and Simon says, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him this the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. So here's the picture. Jesus is having a private conversation with Peter, but Peter and John are like at the hip. There's something. Those two guys are always together. You see it in the book of Acts later on. These guys are buds. And, and I think the introverted and that analytical processing uh, intuitive John was sitting back there eavesdropping because he really wanted his pal to get it right because he knew that, that his pal had denied Jesus three times and he was noticing how many times Jesus asked him to reinstate himself by asking him if he loved him. But this time he's made a, a clarifying statement. He said, do you love me more than all these others? And John and, and Peter didn't say, yeah, Lord, I love him more than all these guys. Because now Peter was really in touch with who he was. 
And what he knew was he wasn't the guy that he thought he was. Peter is the perfect example of the guy that says, I like to compare myself with everybody else, and I'm not as bad as anybody. Peter is that self-righteous, self-sufficient person that goes through life basically thinking, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty, God's kind of blessed to have me in his kingdom. And what Peter finally encounters, in a way, he understood who he was back in Luke. I am a, I am a wicked and unrighteous man. But it's really interesting. Now he really gets that. He knows he is a coward. Because three times he denied Jesus. And three times Jesus, Jesus is not sticking the knife in Peter here. Jesus is using a surgeon's scalpel to remove the self-illusion and the false self that Peter has about who he is. And you know, later on he says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, Peter is still got one major problem. He wants to compare himself with everybody else. In fact, you see it reoccurring in Peter's life over and over again. In the Gospels, Peter, he, he really is afraid of what people think about him. He's a man of incredible courage and incredible cowardice. Now, here's the whole point. Guess what Jesus tells Peter to do? He says, I'm giving you authority. Now you're qualified. Now you're in touch with who you aren't. You see, so many of us are looking to be competent and capable, and that, none of that qualifies us. You know what qualifies us? Knowing who we are and who Jesus is and His sufficiency in our stead. It's that simple. We do not save ourselves. God, we are not trying to work our way to God. God has worked His way down to us. Let's all rise. If you were a consultant, if I were to hire you, if I were to go out into all the world and hire the top consultants, political, economic, strategic, from the top universities and the top corporations and the top political campaigns, and I were to say to you, I want to create a legacy where civilizations hundreds and even thousands of years from now focus on me as an individual what would your plan be to create that kind of longevity would it be to be born in obscurity to an uninfluential family who has no power or money whose very birth incites the despot of the day to cause infanticide for the entire population so that he makes his one journey outside of his home country to escape that murderous situation? Would you have him not go to the best universities that can be had? Would you have him not drive, write a book? I mean, they told John F. Kennedy you have to do profiles and courage if you want to be president. 
And every single presidential candidate before has done that exact thing. You got to write a book. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't start any major universities. And yet all the universities in the world can't hold the books that are written about him. He didn't write any songs, but there's more songs written about Jesus than there are any other person in the world. He told us to love our enemies. Then he did it. And then he raised from the dead. Sentimentality is not sufficient. Bumper sticker religion doesn't change lives. Encountering the resurrected Jesus is who is how lives are changed. Moralism is not sufficient. Being good enough is not sufficient. Encountering Jesus and letting him help you to identify who you are in relationship to him and who you are in relationship to him is beloved. And you're never going to be good enough to earn your way into his good graces. But receiving his resurrected life and renouncing and repenting of who you are. See, I think here's, here's a, you know, this really messes up a lot of sequential conversion theology. But Jesus said this to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Then he uses these words. But when you are converted, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Way back in Luke, at the very beginning of his ministry, he called Peter to follow him. And here at the very end of his ministry, he called Peter to follow him. So when was Peter saved? I really don't care. My question is, are you willing to follow Jesus today? And if you're not, maybe you need to. So I want us to pray, Lord Jesus. <coughs> I want to follow you again. I, want to, I, I don't want to compare myself to John or to anybody else. I just want to follow you. I know that unlike Mary, there's some of us, we like to make things happen. We're the we're the agent of change which is an illusion just as much as being a victim is an illusion Lord I pray right now that every person in this room would just decide they want to follow you this morning today right now the scripture says today is the day of salvation This is Easter Sunday, which is the same as Resurrection Sunday. This is as good a day. If you've been on that fence, if you've said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a follower, then I want to solicit to you. I want to encourage you. I want to compel you to come and become a follower of Jesus Christ. You follow me. Can you hear him calling your name? I want to invite you, if you would like to discuss with somebody what it means to follow Jesus, please come forward. And also, if you have another need, if you have a need for healing, if you need prayer, if you, whatever 
if you're a doubting Thomas, if you're a Mary, or you just say, you know what, I've got enough evidence, I believe, the eyes of my heart are opening up, and I want to follow Jesus. Come and talk to somebody about that this morning. Amen.